First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. Transformation is our theme for December. Change, of course, is inevitable. We can't help but change, whether we want to or not. And the first task is to accept this. Don't try to fight change, and when it comes, as it is continually coming, let go of that impulse to pine for good old days. Embrace change. That's the first point. But transformation suggests something a little more than the random or seemingly random vicissitudes of change. Transformation, in the sense of a spiritual orientation, suggests a certain intentionality about it. There's changing by accident, and then there's changing on purpose. And transformation should have some purpose driving it, but not too much. Some intentionality, but not too much intentionality. Remember that your purpose comes out of who you are now. And as you remake yourself, leave room for new purposes to emerge. Don't try to control the process beyond a very gentle guidance. It's like being a parent, only being a parent for yourself. A good parent knows, as Khalil Gibran said, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but are not from you. And though they are with you, they yet belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you, for life goes not backward nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. End quote. So I'm suggesting take the same approach to yourself. For you too are a child of life's longing for itself. And what you transform into comes through you, but not from you. Parenting a child or parenting yourself, either way, you offer gentle guidance, not control. You protect safety, make a safe space in which your child or yourself can become what life means for them or you to be. This idea of control is worth looking into in some detail, especially if we're going to teach ourselves to let go of it a little. The Stoic philosophers emphasize not worrying about what isn't in your control, and that is such an important wisdom. Let go of concern for what isn't in your control. But what is in your control? There is a further wisdom that recognizes that any control is ultimately an illusion. Your thoughts? Well, no, your thoughts are not in your control. Try sitting very still and very quiet, lowering your eyelids so that they are almost but not quite shut, gazing downward at a 45-degree angle and bringing all your awareness to something in the present, noticing perhaps the minute details of the sensations of breathing in and breathing out. You will notice soon, before long, 
a thought will intrude. The mind will wander off from the assignment you have given it. I need to do my laundry soon. So-and-so was curt with me. What was that about? Perhaps I'll start a garden. What's playing at the theaters? What's for lunch? You didn't ask for those thoughts. You didn't choose them. They just popped up. And if your thoughts aren't, are, and if you, and if your thoughts aren't in your control, then can the actions that flow from those thoughts be? They certainly seem to be in our control, and it's important that they seem to be. The illusion is a necessary one, but let's be clear that it's an illusion nonetheless. Spiritual deepening involves gradually seeing through the illusion of control. Sages in many times and places have recognized that we're not in control, and recently scientific methods have confirmed it. Benjamin Libay's experiments in the mid-1980s showed that the motor signal is headed to the muscle several hundred milliseconds before we become conscious of it. We have already begun the action before the apparatus of conscious decision-making comes online. For most of day-to-day -day life, consciousness isn't deciding what to do. Consciousness's job is to come along after the fact, notice what we are doing, and to make up a story about how what we're doing is what we meant to do. <laughs> All day long, it's in there going, I meant to do that. Oh yeah, I meant to do that too. But the meaning to do it trails the beginning of doing it. Our brains create a running commentary on whatever we're doing, even though the interpreter module has no access to the real causes or motives of our behavior. In Michael Gazaniga's experiments, he flashed the word walk in a part of the visual field that would be seen only by the right hemisphere. It's the left hemisphere that processes language consciously, so subjects were not conscious of seeing the word yet many of them would stand and walk away. When asked why they were getting up, subjects had no problem inventing a reason. I'm going to get something to drink, they might say. Our inner interpreter module is good at making up explanations, but not at knowing that it has done so. My language centers and neocortex notice my behavior they make up a story about this character named Meredith, who is heroic, yet with certain endearing foibles. <laughs> At each moment of the day, this Meredith can be found deliberately and intentionally acting. Whatever it is Z is doing is a reasonable part of Z's pursuit of reasonable purposes. This is an after-the-fact story. The behavior came first, we now know. And people of great spiritual awareness have recognized long before Libé or Gazaniga came along that this story was, this story of the self was a fabrication. With spiritual development and seeing through the illusion of control comes an increased appreciation of grace, the wonder, the beauty, and the abundance that cannot be earned or deserved. Decreased worry and anxiety from trying to control outcomes. Decreased attachment to the ego's story about either accomplishments or failures. A decreased interest in blaming self or others. Why would our brains be built to generate this illusion of control? 
One plausible suggestion offered by Janet Kwasniak is that the conscious feeling of intent is simply a marker indicating that we owned the action. This marker is very important so that our episodic memory shows whether actions were ours or just happened. The memory of an event that came from me influences my neurons for the future. We do learn from our actions and their results. If I get a pain from something I did, my neural wiring makes me less likely to do that again. But if the pain just happened, if it was apparently not a result of some particular behavior of mine, that affects my wiring uh, in a different way. What we call volition is not a generator of behavior, but only a perception that a behavior is ours. The illusion that intentions precede and determine action is a byproduct of the way the brain learns from experience. We are not in control. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, intentions do matter. It matters that we set an intention for what we're going to do today, for this week, or with this one precious life. There's a distinction to be made between the after-the-fact rationalizations that our impulses of the moment come up with versus the large, overarching story of the purpose of our lives. Both, it would seem, are fabricated stories, but the overarching story has the power to feed back down into those subconscious places that generate particular behaviors. In other words, conscious brain has no idea what's going on in the subconscious. So conscious brain just makes up a story. Yet, subconscious brain is listening to that story, and it starts taking it into account. It listens with a skeptical ear at first, but if the story is referenced repeatedly, the subconscious wiring adjusts. Say one time you did a favor for someone. Maybe you did it for purely self-interested reasons, but you happen to have been asked why you did it, and you fabricated a story, not from any intent to deceive, but because it's the job of your conscious brain to invent rationalizations, and say that your story was that you care about the well-being of others. Subconscious brain was listening to that story. It was not entirely sure whether to believe what it heard, but it made a little note. It sort of went, huh. And if, that, if it so happens that you have other occasions to tell that story about yourself, then the story gets reinforced a little more. What began, as all our explanations of our behavior do, as an after-the-fact rationalization, can eventually become an actual driving force. And that leads us to the question for today. What is your great vow? I'll talk about how to discover the vow that is within you. What is the promise your life makes to life itself? It's just a story, sure, but it's a story that can be potent. I had a six-month sabbatical back at the end of 2019 and beginning of 2020, the six months immediately prior to the beginning of the pandemic, as it turned out. And I spent that sabbatical in residence at a monastery in Klatskanai, Oregon. It was called Great Vow Zen Monastery. When we weren't meditating or doing the work to maintain the place, 
there were occasional group classes and workshops. As its name implies, Great Vow Zen Monastery facilitates reflection about the vow in your life, in our lives, the overarching story of our commitment and values that comes to be our guiding force. We can have a vow of the moment, like vowing to get dinner on the table, but the underlying vow is what you get if you keep asking why. To adapt an example from the book, The Vow-Powered Life by Jan Chosen Bays, who is the abbot of Great Vows and Monastery, suppose a youth vows to become the highest scoring player on her basketball team. If she happens to be asked, or to ask herself, a series of why questions, there are various directions that she might go. She might want to impress a certain prospective mate that she has her eye on. Why? There are, again, various possible answers. Perhaps because I eventually want to have a long, happy marriage like my grandparents had. Why? Because I want a, a deep and lasting connection to another human being. Why? To learn to love other people genuinely and also myself. And this is where the question stops. We recognize implicitly that we have reached an ultimate. The series of why questions might have taken us down a very different path to a different ultimate. She might instead have said she wanted to become her team's top scorer in order to get a scholarship to college, and that would, that would otherwise be unaffordable. Why does she want to go to college? She might say to get a good job, or she might say to learn about international politics, and those would each lead to a different ultimate. Whatever it might be, when you get to that ultimate that puts a stop to further why questions, that's your great vow. When our young basketball player first formed her determination to be her team's top scorer, there were almost certainly a variety of urges at work. As my father once said to me, son, nobody ever did anything for only one reason. If subjected to the pleasure of uh, to the if subjected to the pressure of why questions, she will she will select rationales that sound good at the time. Yet the subconscious is listening to what the conscious brain makes up, and if the story is one she sticks to, it will gradually become a true guide. The great vow is your personal mission. Most of us are used to mission statements for institutions, companies, congregations. But do you have a mission statement for your life? If you do, you've articulated your great vow. If we are never pressed for an ultimate purpose, then we might spend our lives pulled this way and that by forces of the moment. So it's important to pursue that series of why questions, get down to an ultimate that feels right and stick to it. And keep repeating it, especially as an explanation for what you're doing, to strengthen the link between your words and your actions. And each time you sincerely say it, you reinforce your orientation toward realizing that world that you dream of. As you think about how you would articulate your great vow, it'll be helpful to reflect on sources of vow. There are three sources to particularly attend to. Inherited, reactive, and inspired. Try to remember those three because I'm going to come, because I'm going to ask you about those later. Inherited, reactive, and inspired. First, what is your inherited vow? 
As you were growing up, what were you given to understand by your parents or your primary caretakers was the primary function of a life? They may never have articulated it to you, but if you had to now articulate what your parents' great vows were, what were they? My parents were both professors, as I've mentioned. Mom's field was chemistry and physics. Dad's was English. In the early years of my life, they were grad students, and then they settled into professorships. So my inherited vow from both of them was, one, learn stuff, two, teach it to others. These vows made sense to me, and they guided me through young adulthood as I became a professor myself. You might, however, have reached age 18, that uh, feeling that your parents showed you more about how you wanted not to be than how to be. So that leads to the second possibly important source for your vow, reactive vows. As Jan Chosen Bayes explains, reactive vows can ricochet through generations. For example, a child raised by a military father who is precise, strict, authoritarian, and conservative may become a hippie. The hippie's child, tired of dirty clothes and living out of a van and not having predictable meals, may decide to become an accountant who lives in the same house for 40 years and hoards food, toilet paper, and paper clips. The accountant's child may become a rock musician perpetually on tour, the musician's child a buttoned-up stockbroker, and so on. Our reactive vows can be a response to a situation faced while growing up. Um, uh, often react, that's a different way that reactive vows can be formed. People who become physicians often have had an experience with an illness or death in their early years, either in themselves or in their family, and their choice of profession may be due to an unconscious desire to gain control over the helplessness and vulnerability they felt as they faced a sickness and death at an age when they had no defenses for or coping skills. Incidentally, many lawyers seem to be impelled into law after an early experience of injustice. A reactive source of vows is not a bad thing. It could be overreactive, but it might be just right reactive. What makes it reactive is that it's driven by a desire to avoid something, avoid being like your parents, or avoid a kind of experience such as sickness or injustice. So, in spite of the inherited vow, the reactive vow, and third is inspired vows. We've got inherited, reactive, and inspired. We pick up our inspired vows, often in adolescence or early adulthood, when we learn about someone we admire. We aspire to be like them. Martin Luther King Jr.'s vow of nonviolence came from an inspired vow, inspired by the life and work of Mahatma Gandhi. Athletes often draw inspiration from a particular athlete that they admire. So who are your heroes? These, these three sources of vow are for you to reflect on, the inherited, reactive, and inspired. Ultimately, though, you cannot discover your vows by thinking. Your vow lies within you. To bring it out, to consciously articulate and thereby strengthen it as the orientation of your life, it helps to explore those three questions. What did you learn from parents or primary caretakers about what life is for? What are your inherited vows? Second, what negative lessons have you learned? Lessons about what you wanted to avoid, if at all possible. What are your reactive vows? 
And third, who are your heroes? What are your inspired vows? So here is what I am asking you to do. And do this today, when you get home this afternoon, before you forget. Write down your answers about inherited vow, reactive vow, and inspired vow. Then sleep on it. Sometime tomorrow, look again at what you wrote, what you put down about your three sources, inherited, reactive, inspired, and then in that light, draft your great vow that modifies and brings those three together. You can share it with others. I would love to hear what you discern, or you can keep it to yourself, but let it transform into who you are. Let it transform you into who you are. Amen.